You're listening to the Two Bucks Podcast, the podcast for outdoor entrepreneurs. Little by little, I was getting the sense of my time isn't my time. Just kept feeling this pull to the outdoors and wanting to do something in the outdoor space. Welcome back to another Two Bucks Podcast episode. This is the podcast for outdoor entrepreneurs, and I'm your host, Brian Krebs. Today, I have Greg Kazmierski. We had to go over the last name a little bit because it's there's a lot of different letters. It's not one that's common in my neck of the woods, and I didn't want to butcher it, but we got Greg on the line today. How are you doing, Greg? I'm doing well. Yeah, you got the you got the last name down. I'm a Northern Michigan Polak by birth, so it's a tough one to pronounce. There you go. Um and yeah, it's once you hear it a couple times, it's pretty simple. But northern Michigan, so like way up in the UP, uh, northern Lower Peninsula is where I was born and raised before okay. moving down to Ohio. Here, yeah, uh, my wife and I we just actually moved down to Ohio back in the summer of 2022. So we've been down here a little bit over a year now. A little bit over a year, and so did you move? So you're you're heavily invested in the white tail habitat game between being a real estate agent now with your license and being a part of whitetail partners did you move to ohio for work like for the more of the whitetail grain belt if you will versus the northwoods where it's kind of hard to do some habitat work in the northwoods yeah definitely yeah so i uh i cut my teeth in the woods up in the the big northern Michigan swamps and the big timber area, you know, that's where I learned how to hunt growing up and everything. But I started coming down and traveling to Ohio back in, I think it was 2018. It was like my second to last year of college when I finally started making uh, trips, just coming down here, hunting public land and stuff. And right from that first trip, it was just like uh, such a difference, such a world of difference and just the quality of deer, the habitat for the deer and Uh, I just, I knew that it was always something I wanted to do. And that's like when my wheels started turning, trying to figure out how can I, how can I turn this into a profession? And uh, I slowly kind of planted the seed and it was my girlfriend at the time, wife now, Hey, I would really like to maybe make a move one day and uh, come down, come down here, especially. And we actually bought a house in uh, right, right during COVID in 2020. And it was like an off market older house and we ended up buying it. And then we just completely remodeled the entire thing. And with that on top of the housing market going crazy, uh, over the next two years, we got a really good return on it. And I brought her down to Ohio for the first time. And uh, right about that same time when we were getting ready to list and, uh, she liked it enough and, we decided to just uh, make the move down to Ohio. So that brought us down here, got me connected with Whitetail Partners, and it's been nonstop ever since. So where is, so you're the Ohio Whitetail Partners guy. Yep. And so where's Whitetail Partners originated out of? And like, what does it, what does it look like when you become, you know, the Ohio, the state of Ohio's representative for Whitetail Partners? I mean, I assume it's pretty much, yeah, here's your state, here's our brand, everything from here on out is on your shoulders now. Yep, so uh, Whitetail Partners started, originated, 
I believe it was 2019. It was over in Wisconsin. Uh, Sam Billhorn is the guy who started this. Uh, he is over in the Madison area and he's owned property out there and has always been super passionate about the whitetail habitat and then just decided himself to turn it into a business and kind of build it out over the next few years where uh, in 2022, so the 22-23 consulting season, he brought on a team of guys. Uh, we have me in Ohio and we have a Michigan guy, uh, Tennessee and Georgia. And what that looks like for me is I travel outside of Ohio for the habitat planning and everything. Uh, like my furthest trip last year for consulting season was in upstate New York, which is like seven and a half hour drive, I think, from my place, uh, which as you can imagine, it's pretty different habitat from Southern Ohio, but I was able to lean on my experience from growing up in Northern Michigan uh, while I was up there because it's very similar to that. And yeah, I pretty much just get to build my own. I, I look at like Whitetail Partners brand as like the umbrella of me getting to craft my own brand of this is my style. This is what I know about Whitetail Habitat. And then I just have this great group of guys to lean back on if I have any questions in areas that I might not know as much about. You know, I have four direct numbers to guys that are doing the same thing I am that I can just like, hey man, what do you think about this? And they're able to give me that feedback. So it's like, I get the blessing of being able to run my own ship over here in Ohio, but then also have that support from guys that share the same passion that I do. Oh yeah, that's perfect. I mean, growing up, I'd always love to to do Habitat full time. Um, I just didn't really know what to how to do it, how to go about it. And so I became an engineer instead, but it's something that I love doing on our family farms. And now we own our own farm for the first time. Mm -hmm. Me and my wife just bought a 40. And so I was just actually right before this call, I just went and grabbed the trail cam picks quick, nice. looked through a bunch of cards. We cut a, we cut a brand new food plot into the middle of a jungle swamp, like alder and, and buckthorn, um, all over the place, just thick, like too thick for deer to really use a majority of it. I mean, they probably weave through the pockets, but it, a lot of it was so thick that like you couldn't walk through it. You'd have to mm -hmm. like climb through the jungle. And I took the brush hog and cleared it out and put a little plot right smack dab in the middle of it. And then we recent, just last weekend, I, I dug a water hole. I'm going to clean it up a little bit. Kind of nice. started getting stuck. It started getting a little too wet, so I had to let it dry out. And, but yeah, yeah the, all that work, I just love habitat work. I could do it all day long every day, um, but doing it for yourself doesn't pay very well. Right, yeah. Yeah, you get that sweat equity. That's about the only return you get when you're doing it for your own farm. Yeah, and if you never sell your farm, right, yeah, it's hard to yeah. cash in your sweat equity. I mean, it, yeah. obviously, it goes towards hunting and, and better experiences in the fall hunting, but... But yeah, it would be fun. My dream is always to been to look for for properties that were very underworked, like they just mm -hmm. were left alone or basically didn't do any improvement, or completely, you know, completely raw properties that have never been worked. It, it just we've owned this piece, we've never done a thing. Get like better deals on property, maybe property that's not, um, you know, ready for the primetime tv for example and then go in for a year or two with big equipment that works well right i don't want to be doing this with like chainsaws and handsaws but go in with the equipment to get it done fast and look, flip a property 
in like a year or two into a turnkey hunting, like a destination hunting property. And then, you know, cash out on that equity. I've always wanted to do that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's like my, uh, big, big reasoning behind why I got my real estate license too, was, uh, just so I would be in that part of this game, you know, the buying and selling of properties. Mm -hmm. So I can really start to understand what that value is, uh, because especially recently the prices for land down in South Southern Ohio, Southeast Ohio, particularly have been just keep going up and up and up. But the idea of it's like no different than flipping a house, you know, it's just, you're doing it with land. And instead of adding a bedroom, adding a bathroom, you're just, you're developing the habitat, creating trail systems. And like you said, making that turnkey hunting property, that's been my dream for so long is to be able to do that on my own farm. Uh, it's just that obviously it's one of those things that, especially when you're talking about wanting to buy a property, even the undeveloped underappreciated stuff in Southern Ohio, it's, it's hard to do that in your mid twenties uh, when you're just kind of bootstrapping your own business. So I figure let's, let's kind of wet, wet my boots with working with other people, helping them out, building up a little bit of that funds myself. So then I can start doing that for my own farms and then starting to lead with that experience is exactly what I want to do. It's just like, that's my dream. Uh, Just being able to work on these properties all day. It's just an awesome, awesome experience. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's hard. I mean, you got to smart, start small, um, start in counties that aren't known for big deer, um, mm-hmm. start with counties that aren't known for 200 bushel corn, right? Cause that really what drives everything is farmland yeah. prices. And Definitely. then the, the recreational land kind of legs behind it usually in price. But I've always thought like, man, if, what if you could get good enough at it where if you bought a property, you're like in two years, there'll be a booner on camera. Mm-hmm. Not that we'll grow one, but we'll just attract one. Cause we're going to make yep. this property so premier. And then what's the value of that property if there's a living booner on it when you go to sell or to make it even more you know extreme like what if we had a living 200 inch whitetail on this property when we go to list it and then maybe just go to auction instead of list it and say yeah you know what's it worth yeah because i feel like there's a lot of people out there that would pay a lot of money for the opportunity to to hunt a 200 inch free range whitetail oh yeah yeah just to know they're in the woods with it you know and that's that's like uh kind of like my whole game plan for this is so as like a hunter myself for my own pursuit i'm very analytical in my approach and how i go about it and i use like trail camera data to determine how i come into the woods and where i'm hunting when i'm hunting and everything like that and i have this uh, format laid out that i use in an Excel sheet that I track all of my trail cam data, just like with historical weather patterns and everything like that. And I'm kind of transitioning that from my own personal hunting to when I get on these properties, we can create this huge database of, okay, here's year one. This is the trail cam bucks that we were getting. And then however long, you know, say we hold onto the property for three years, this is how things have progressed years one, two, and three align with these habitat improvements. So that way, when people are interested in those turnkey properties, you know, this is what they're getting potential at that 200 inch booner. And then also, this is how quick we can improve these properties if you trust these habitat improvements that we're doing. 
is I think that you have a very good opportunity, especially in like the Appalachia region there, the terrain is just so rugged and rough that if you can manipulate how deer navigate the landscape and then just give them that security and food, I mean, they're going to show up. And if you don't pressure it on top of that, like you're going to get those opportunities. It's just a lot of work in unforgiving terrain. So I just feel like there's just not a lot of people that really want to do it because there's, there's just really not that much fun about it when you're talking about going out and doing projects and 90 to 100 degree heat with spiders and snakes crawling around all over the place you know it's uh it's not very appealing to the typical typical hunter yeah i'm out if there's snakes involved and they're not gardener snakes i'm out and i think you guys have like timber rattlers out there right uh i have not seen any in ohio i have came across them once i get over into west virginia though um i see those and then the the big black the rat snakes man those things just lay out in the sun and uh when i'm out in the fields and i i'm not a snake guy myself i've learned to like kind of deal with them but man it's uh especially growing up in northern michigan you don't you don't see anything like that and now you're coming across rattlesnakes and these big black monsters all over and you're like man this is a different world down here no i would i would definitely have the judge that can shoot 410 shells and yeah. i would dump the clip on a snake i don't care <laughs> yeah i mean especially a rattlesnake i'm out i'm done i mean yeah, the, i know yeah, the rat snakes are actually probably pretty helpful but i hate snakes yeah. i yeah same i'm not like like deathly afraid of them i just don't like them like if mm. i see one like imagine i'm sitting on the ground i look over and i see a snake like yeah i'm gonna jump and scream right. but like yeah. if i'm walking and there's a snake over by my shop 20 yards away and i can see it it's just like okay i'm going to get a shovel and i'm gonna kill that thing yep right this episode is brought to you by steelhead outdoors now Everyone knows that Steelhead Outdoor Safes are the only American-made, fire-insulated, modular safes on the market. But you might not know that Steelhead Outdoors also carries a full line of handgun lockers, pistol boxes, and even custom vault doors. So whether you're looking for a locker to store your concealed carry when you walk in the front door, or a pistol box to mount underneath your nightstand, or even if you're looking to secure an entire doorway in your home and create a safe room, Steelhead Outdoors has a solution for you. You can tell the guys over at Steelhead are gun owners because they have the gun owner in mind when they design their products. Their handgun lockers are just the right size to store modern-day handguns with lasers, optics, double-stack magazines, and even a backup gun, while their pistol boxes are the perfect size to mount underneath your bed, your nightstand, or even in your vehicle. And when it comes to a custom vault door, they have designed a panic lock and emergency release so you can easily lock and unlock your vault door completely from the inside, meaning you are always safe but never trapped inside. Go to SteelheadOutdoors.com to check out all of their security options and pick the right one for you. Yeah, it's, I, I would be out. I, I would stick to just using equipment. And I guess that's a good point because when you talk about, well, let's get, let's back up. So what's it look like when you get a client to consult? Mm -hmm. Are you doing just planning? Like we're, I'm just working with my mind and I'm coming up with a plan. I'm, I'm walking the property. I'm looking at maps and I'm just going to give you a plan of like, if this is what I would do and then you can go do it. Or are you 
doing the plan and then say, and if you like the plan and you don't want to do it yourself, we can do the work, but then you're going to pay this much more and we can come in and do this work for you as well. Yep. So you pretty much, you hit the nail on the head there uh, where I can come in and just design the property, give you that habitat plan. You know, this is where we should implement bedding and why this is where we should create these travel corridors and why this is where we should plant food plots and why. So give them that full base plan. So if they're, you know, their own kind of like bootstrap guy, like I want to go ahead and put the work in myself or it's, you know, if, if, if it's more of like a budget thing, then yeah, we're going to go ahead and do that. But then there is also the opportunity to draw that plan up and then come back and then actually do the work. And then, like you said, it just depends. Like I can send out a full quote after I draw up the habitat plan, because then I have everything there right in front of me, you know, this is what it would cost to do every single project on this plan, or maybe they only need help with the trail clearing, or maybe they just want you to come in and set the stands, whatever that may be, whatever that looks like, I'm just going to make myself available. Um, just so, you know, I can keep building up that good reputation and I don't have the full set of equipment myself yet to, you know, if I had to do like this massive trail clearing project, I'm not going to be able to come in and do that personally yet, but that's where I lean into the network I'm building up of land managers that are just doing, you know, like trail clearing or just coming in and planting food plots. If there's somebody that specializes in an area that I know is going to do a better job than me, I'm willing to outsource that to make sure that these plans are what I've designed them to be. Um, and I'm not afraid to lean into that network of people just because that, that's what it's there for. You know, um, I, I feel like there's a lot of value in that. So I, I make sure that if the work is done by me or my network, that's going to be done the right way. Okay. That's what I was going to lean into next is just ask, okay, so we make the plan, they pay for the plan because you did that work. And then it comes to doing the work and you're like, all right, I don't, landowner he's like you know i don't have a tractor i don't have a skid steer i want you to do it and so then i was going to say like dear are you using equipment are you renting equipment for the job and then just charging your labor or like what's that look like because i we just did buy a tractor we bought a little basically a food plot tractor a 35 horse pto with a bucket no third function or rear hydraulics just a simple tractor to pull food plot equipment mm-hmm. and and it's great. Now I want to get the forestry mulcher so I can actually yeah. go in and they have a new PTO forestry mulcher that they make for it. So it's like a skid steer, but that rig costs like $75,000 to buy a right. skid steer yeah. and a forestry head. And yeah. so I can buy just the PTO part for my tractor and I'm driving backwards, obviously. So it's a little different, but it would mm-hmm. still be way easier than doing it by hand. Cause I just, I don't feel like you can make a business proposition and it's, it's financially a good idea to do it if you have to use hand tools like chainsaws yeah. and hand saws. Like if you're doing that to do all this work, I mean, you, <laughs> it would just yeah. take forever. Like you, you still yeah, have definitely. to charge like your labor rate, but then there's so many hours that the landowner's going to be like, oh, I'm not going to pay you that much money to do this. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, it just depends on like really the scale of the project, you know, if it requires that more heavy machinery type stuff, then just leaning into those resources of guys that are doing that specifically for their business Mm. and then just like kind of outsourcing it to them. And then if it is like any kind of that smaller equipment that 
I don't have that I can personally go ahead and rent and go out there and do it myself and feel comfortable doing it, you know, I'm going to be able to do that as well. But yeah, it's a lot of this stuff, especially when you're talking, you know, sometimes it's a few hundred acres that we're designing this habitat plan for. And with that one, you know that you're not going to be able to improve all 300 acres in a single summer because that's just an insane amount of work. But you also are not going to be able to do that with just handheld tools. Like you're, you're going to need to bring in heavy equipment if you're going to want to design this the way that it can turn into that turnkey property, whether that be a smaller rental or just like a full on forestry service. Uh, you know, that's, that's going to be the area you're going to have to go on these bigger properties. So if you, if tomorrow you got to the point where you're ready to buy your first piece of equipment, based on what you've been seeing and what you've been helping with, what are you, what would you buy first? Like, what's the first need of heavy equipment? Like, is it a skid steer? Is it a dozer? Is it an excavator? Is it a tractor? What, what's, what are you finding is most common? Like every project I could use this vehicle. So this is what I'm going to buy first when I get to that point. Yeah, I would say, I know it's hard to say for like the actual piece of equipment itself, but for as far as like the projects go, especially in like the southern part of Ohio, uh, the trail systems is such a huge thing because there's so many like invasive plant species down here that just makes the, the landscape so thick and hard to navigate that being able to create trail systems, whether it be for us to access the property or for the deer to actually use the property the way they want to, um, that's going to be like the biggest thing. And that's obviously not something we want to do by hand. So like getting that mulcher would be a great add on, uh, to get going, mm -hmm. but you know, that's also potentially something that you could do with like a mini, like if you got a mini excavator or something out there, like a Bobcat, something like that, that you could start developing these trail systems, maybe not at the large scale, like the mulcher. Uh, but I would say like the trail systems is a huge thing just from what I've observed, uh, just because of how thick the, the landscape can be down here. So are you like when you're cutting in trails, are you just going through thick brush, like one to two inch brush? Or are you like cutting trees down like big uh, trees? So that, yeah. So that usually not going to be cutting the, like the bigger trees down for the trails and stuff more. So just like that brushy habitat. Uh, it's, you know, obviously that's going to vary from one property to the next, you know, some properties are going to be these massive mature timber stands that are open and you got to bring that cover back in somehow to conceal your movement. Uh, and then the trail is going to vary based off of, are we creating this for deer specific that we're never going to be using? And in that case, you know, we only got to do it a little more than shoulder width wide, or are we going to use this as a hunter access trail? We want to make sure we have this quiet in and out access that I like to set up the hunter access perpendicular to the deer movement, uh, just because I feel like it conceals the visual. And then you can always design your setups accordingly based off of wind and thermals to access. When I access perpendicular, that kind of allows me to keep, always keep that wind thermal to my advantage and keep that deer movement out in front of me. Mm -hmm. And then I'm never going into that interior part of the property, especially pretty much, uh, pretty much like from now on through the rest of hunting season, I try to just as much as possible. And when I say me, my designs, you know, that's what I try to tell guys, like get the work done, get everything set up and then just let the deer have 
sometimes more than 80% of your property to them. And you're going to create that sanctuary that gives you the opportunity to produce these boomers in the future. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's the key is having areas where they can feel safe. And that's what I like so much about putting my plot um, after the podcast, I'll have to show you the, we had, we flew a drone over it. My buddy came and brought his drone out and it was right after I brush hawked this plot. And it's, I mean, it's, I would say it's on average 10 feet tall. Some of it's upper towards 15 feet. Um, Hardly any of the space on the property is lower than six feet for any amount of distance. Like, like you, like, 10 yards maybe is the biggest pocket mm-hmm. that you could see without like, that's your visibility, like maybe 30 oh, feet yeah. max. And okay. like, there's one small corner where there's like an acre of just grass, like mm-hmm. swamp grass. But other than that, like 30 feet. And I finally cut that plot in, but from the plot, it's on the middle of our block. Like our 40 goes into like the middle of like a 300 acre section. And like most of it is like 10 acre long, deep parcels of homes. And then ours is like right in the middle. So it kind of backs up to everyone else's. Yep. But from like that plot, you can't see our house. You can't see any houses. You can't see any roads. You can't see any human presence from that plot. Mm -hmm. Like I can't see into it unless I'm in it and the deer can't see out of it. And then they're going to have food and water eventually. Right. Mm -hmm. This year, the food didn't grow so great because I basically broadcast into a brush hog you know, mm-hmm. brush hogged area because the disc isn't going to, it didn't work at all. It just clogged up with dead grass and stuff. Yeah. And so I just brushed, I just threw it out, kind of raked it to see if the seed could fall underneath the dead grass. And then we got mm-hmm. about an inch and a half rain. And so it's germinating. It's not, it's, it's not great, but it's enough. Yeah. But just it's opening it up, anyway. I've mm-hmm. noticed deer have started to use the plot just to navigate because it's, they yep. now they have 150 yards where they can just walk. Yeah. And definitely. I just pulled yeah, them hard horned buck on camera but that's what i was thinking like that security that sanctuary they have everything they need they have the cover they've always had the cover now they have the food and a good water source all in one spot without ever being disturbed i mean if i don't go there no one can disturb them like even Mm -hmm. if everyone walks to their their boundary like their back line they're still hundreds of yards away of through the jungle of these deer Mm -hmm. so it's it's a perfect setup yeah, no, that's awesome. Yeah, that's always been uh, like my big things. So like when I, I started out by saying I started coming down to Ohio here, uh, I think it was five years ago now, and started hunting public land. It's been like this massive learning journey for me over the last five years. But what it's really taught me, which like I've used that experience that I've grown on public land to go onto these properties is just that one deer are very like just lazy in general if they can if you can make it easy on them and they don't feel any like sense of danger they're going to use these setups that you create for them and they really only need shelter security like a safe place to sleep food and then that water and if you can give them all of that and kind of leave them alone they're going to live on your property especially if you have enough area because they're not like us where we're like, I want to start this business and build it up. I want to go and buy that bigger farm. You know, they're not thinking like, I got to keep up with the Joneses. They're just thinking like, I got to live. I got to pass along these genetics and that's it. And that's in it. When you break it down to that, it's like, it, it's almost in my mind, it's just like, it's so obvious what they need. 
And I try to, I try to use that experience. I grew like hunting public land, um, just especially like the mature bucks, the older bucks, they're just such a different breed of animal and they operate so differently that you, you really, I, it comes down to like, where are people not spending time is where those mature older bucks are going to spend their time. They're just really good at finding those places. So if you can combine that with good habitat for the rest of the deer herd in the area, that's, that's what I see as like the ticket to getting your chance to harvest these booners. So I ask everybody this question and I haven't found a great answer yet, but given that the, the land is a majority cover like mine is like, we're not talking Mm -hmm. cornfield country. And what, in your experience, how many acres per mature whitetail buck is the general ratio? I mean, we're not talking Drury outdoors, you know, premier Southern Iowa, talking just the average mill of the run, run of the mill, um, property, plenty of cover, like cover's not the issue. It's, you know, how often, like, is it reasonable that you can grow and, and hunt a handful, like two or three or four mature bucks in a season on your 40, considering like the rest of the landscapes, obviously also habitat, like, like what is Mm -hmm. the ratio? Is it, and I know it depends on the herd and all kinds of things, but yeah. but eventually the mature bucks are going to start butting heads and they're going to start like leaving. Like I don't think it's one per three acres, right? Like I, I think that's it, that's too dense. They're not gonna you're not gonna have a mature buck every three acres. You're not gonna have ten of them on a thirty acre piece. Mm-hmm. Never, no matter how well managed it is, they're gonna push each other off. Yeah. And so, yeah. like, where's that line in your in your experience? Yeah, I see it as like, kind of like how I like to look at it is whatever that system may be, wherever you want to say like, this is where this quote unquote deer herd lives with, you got like your doe families, you have your pockets of doe families, their bedding areas where they live and operate is going to stay rather consistent throughout the calendar year. And then I look at this pecking order of bucks, like, you have all of these buck bedding areas, say that there's five optimal bedding areas for these bucks. It's like the younger one gets the worst spot and then it kind of keeps going all the way up to like, here's the king monarch of the area that gets the best Mm -hmm. bedding area. You know, sometimes that might only be a quarter acre thicket and it could be tucked right behind your barn behind your house you know you could be walking past them every day but if it's just the spot like that's where the big guy's going to be and it's going to stay like that until he slips up and makes a mistake or he passes away from old age and then that kind of moves up that pecking order i feel like the habitat will determine how many bucks can be held in that section you know if you're talking about having a 40 acre piece that's a great piece but are you going to be able to have multiple multiple mature bucks live there? No, it's just not going to happen, but you can optimize it. So you increase the likelihood that bucks are going to travel through it during the pre-rut into the rut phase. So you might not be harvesting mature bucks every year that live on your property, but if you can set your property up to be a great spot that holds doe families and is set up great for deer travel, 
then you can get bucks that are cruising during the rut. That's kind of how I look at it. Like you got to just know what you're working with. It's hard to say an actual numerical number because I go up and hunt in the big woods in Northern Michigan and the deer density is so low that I can be hunting the same buck that covers 10 square miles. Yeah. And down here in Ohio, I can go and cross three ridges and there's four different bucks that I'd be more than happy to shoot just because there's more deer here and that's a great bedding area for a buck. So the, the actual like numerical value is going to vary, but in my mind, like what I see is knowing what you have with your property and setting it up accordingly based off of size, surrounding habitat, and then what you're able to actually do to your property. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, it's so hard because it's like, yeah, I have a 40 and you're like, well, you know, 40 acre, you probably have a, you probably have a decent buck on your property mm-hmm. during the summer, maybe a couple like, you know, maybe a couple, two, three, two-year-olds, a three-year-old, maybe a four-year-old, or, you know, maybe a four- or five-year-old, and that's kind of like your standing herd presence. And you'll never mm-hmm. really know, are they betting on your property, or are they on technically the neighbors, but they're there. They're like, they're they're residents of your block. Mm-hmm. And then my thought is, I just want to set my farm up, so I'm always attracting the best of the yes. of the local area. And as soon as, like, my wife shoots him, and he's gone, another one's going to move in. Like, I just want to, like, basically make a big buck hotel where big yep, bucks are absolutely. checking in and checking out, and I don't mm-hmm. care if they necessarily sleep on my land. I just mm-hmm. care if they die on my land, really. I mean, right. yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, that that's it right there, man. Um, I think it's, I think you can get a lot further with your property regardless of the size if you can just make it appealing for the does because if you have the does eventually those bucks are going to come and check on those oh yeah i mean i just i have does all the time every year i have Mm -hmm. a yeah and that's all you can ask for i have one cell cam out i'm trying to get more cell cams i've been using tactical reveals and i love them but i've got Mm -hmm. one out in the kind of the back i got like a ridge of oaks and maples and so i put it there there's a little opening there's a little clover growing and every day i'll get a doze um, and I, I, de- I think it's definitely like a larger or a mid-sized doe family. Cause there's, you know, there'll be a doe with two fawns that comes by pretty regularly. And then there'll be like two smaller does that come by pretty regularly. All right. And then, so every now and then it's like, well, there's, I'm thinking there's at least like three, four adult does in that pocket, which is a pretty reasonable doe size. I mean, we're not having huge herds, but we have a very uniform, high population of deer in the area, right? We're, we're not pockety like like big egg where there's tons of deer, but when the crops come off, they all pile into one draw. Mm-hmm. It's it's more uniformly spread out because we're in the middle of a, of a habitat system that's probably 1,500 acres if you really expand it out yep. of solid like swamp woods habitat. And then on the borders of all that is egg. Mm-hmm. So we have it's actually yeah. pretty sweet. On the right side, like three miles to my east, there's 15,000 acres of public. Wow. Yeah, one piece. But it gets hammered hard from the Twin Cities metro, like St. Paul, Minneapolis. Okay, yeah. Yep. So I think that holds a lot of holding power in the summer and in the winter. But in the fall, it, they probably start to push out of there and then onto neighboring private, which is me. And then mm-hmm. on the west side of my property, like two miles, there's a 3,000-acre research facility, University of Minnesota research facility that has no hunting, no trespassing. I mean, obviously oh, people break the law, but yeah. it's 3,000 acres of managed habitat without any hunting. That's awesome. And our farm sits right in the, between the two. Yeah, yeah, and, that's perfect. And yeah. I'd say it's like 30% egg, 
70 percent okay. habitat around yeah. like in my part of the county mm-hmm. so plenty of habitat yeah. food is kind of lacking in our narrow neighborhood and so that's mm-hmm. where i'm thinking if i prioritize food on my 40 and let everyone else's land be the habitat then i'm just pulling them in you know every Absolutely. evening yep yeah and that's kind of like uh that's usually where I'll start once I'm set up to come to a property is I'll open up my Onyx, my Google Earth and everything, and I'll zoom way out and see what's around it and how can you use the surrounding area to the advantage of the landowner. And you just like, you're doing it perfectly with your property. Like you're recognizing that there's a lack of food in the area. So you're providing what the deer lack. So it's like, that's why these habitat plans are just not like cookie cutter where I can deliver the same exact plan to 10 people because it's going to vary based from one place to the next, you know, like mm-hmm. where I'm at, especially when you get a little bit more into central Ohio, there's food everywhere all year long, whether it's just natural browse, egg fields, the acorn production, whatever it may be, there's always going to be food there. There's always a lot of security cover because there's these thick invasive species growing all over the place but do they have an easy way to get from one to the other? You know, I've been on small five, 10 acre parcels that are the right parcel. If it's the right parcel, it doesn't matter what size it is. As long as you set it up Mm -hmm. perfect, you know, like you have to acknowledge what you have. You know, if you have that five, 10 acre parcel that's planted smack dab in the middle of two massive ag fields and you have like the only timber, Well, for you to go in and try to plant a three acre food plot, you're not utilizing your land properly, you know, go in there and find out how you can set up the best travel corridors and only hunt it, only hunt it when you know the deer are coming in there, you know, like you can go get a couple cell cameras, set up these travel routes. And once the bucks start cruising, it's like, okay, here's my time to shine on this lot. Just like understanding what you have and how you can increase that value the most by providing what it lacks currently yeah travel routes i think are going to be a big one because you look at the map like when you look at onyx you're like oh hey here's a little opening and sure enough that's where the deer trail is because the yeah. the, the, the it literally is jungle i mean it's like one to two inch mostly one to two inch saplings that probably have sometimes a spacing of like less than six inches between plants mm-hmm. like like willow bushes like a mature willow bush deer aren't walking through the middle of that Right. Because there's a hundred stems in a six by six foot box. But the problem is it's like the next bush starts like five feet away. So they, they overlaps to the point where when they get mature and they're 10 to 15 feet tall, it's just a solid wall of saplings. And I just think like, yeah, deer could choose to run through that. Like, especially if you jumped them, but Mm -hmm. when they're just cruising, like they don't want to go through that. Bucks don't want to be going through that in the summer when they're velvet is really sensitive yeah. and they have to be ripping their antlers through through brush they're gonna pick the pockets and there's just not a lot of them yeah yeah so you provide that and i mean that's just that's what they're gonna do like i said you know they're i feel like deer are pretty lazy um you know not not to get confused with are they athletic and uh nimble through the woods because they are but man they're not gonna make their lives any harder than they have to be at the same time right exactly so are you doing this full time or are you doing this like side 
and trying on the side and trying to build it up to so that it could be full time or like what's it look like year like throughout the year because it's probably seasonal where a lot of the yeah so the the consulting uh, piece of it where I'm drawing up the habitat plans and implementing some of the land management and like planning all that out mm-hmm. really picks up towards the end of the hunting seasons and it's pretty much full swing through like uh, I'd say right around like Memorial Day. Uh, that's that's typically like when the busy season is for all of this consulting. And that's why I wanted to pick up like the real estate license as well. So that way it could uh, help me with that gap and work and kind of keep me busy during the summertime when I can start now helping people buy and sell these properties, prepare them for the fall and then transition that right into the consulting season. Um, it is so like, I put all of my business time into this brand, like what I'm building with like the buy, design, improve and sell. Like that's, that's what I do Uh, as far as like income goes to cover those gaps. Just, it's just kind of like side hustling type stuff to keep the lights on and keep moving forward as I build this up to a sustainable thing. Okay. Uh, I, I also do. So like I do droning on the side, I bought a drone that I use for like my habitat planning and stuff. Okay. But I also have like my own drone company where I just do uh, marketing work. I work with a lot of like out-of-state land investors that okay. are looking to buy up properties. And I go there and I'll just take a bunch of aerial photos for them, put together a marketing video and um, just give them like notes on the property. So they know kind of like a listing range. Yeah. And so that's that's like my main source of income in the off season is the droning. And then uh, hopefully, you know, my goal is to one day just be able to do this full time and kind of find ways to fill in those income gaps when when the peak season isn't here. Gotcha. Yeah, it's it's hard because something like hunting is so seasonal. Like even mm-hmm. even if you're like in content and you're, you're like you got 12 weeks to film and you got to find a way to pay the bills for 52 weeks. Right. Yeah. And and when you're filming, like you're so busy, like you're not doing a lot of other stuff. And then sometimes like depending on what your, you know, brand is like other people they're they don't have anything to do between January and Memorial Day because, you know, there's no trail camera pictures. There's no habitat work to do. I mean, mm-hmm. it's like like if you don't ice fish or shed hunt, like what are you doing in the off season? And it's so hard to like get like a, a three month job because nobody wants to hire you for three months out of the year unless you find like a very specific industry where that's where they work. Like, yeah. like if you're putting in docks and taking out docks, like, yeah, that's Memorial day and labor day. You, you get 300 hours of work in two weeks. Right. Yeah. And so maybe that is something you can like augment, but yeah, it's really hard when you work in, in the hunting industry because it's so seasonal compared to say yeah. fishing, which is pretty much year round. Yeah. Yeah. It can be difficult. Um, it's just been kind of like at, until I can get to that established point, like especially with the real estate and stuff, it's just kind of, uh, nose to the grindstone figuring out any way I can keep, keep it going is what I'm doing. You know, I've done, I do the droning, but when the droning's not bringing me in a lot of work, I do like the gig work type stuff, yeah. uh, you know, pretty much whatever I got to do. Cause I just know that I'm not, I'm not designed for a nine to five. Yeah. never have been i got a, i had a couple of those jobs in college and i was like man this this ain't it you know i gotta i gotta figure something out and uh i would i would a hundred times out of a hundred rather spend all night delivering meals and stuff than i would to punch the clock nine to five and give up on the dream yeah 
Yeah, I hear you there. And it's, so is you're focused in Ohio. So is that where long-term you see most of the efforts taking place, whether it's being a, like, for example, a Whitetail Properties real estate agent in Iowa, or sorry, in Ohio, until you have the, the Whitetail Partners, you know, mm-hmm. distinction between the two set up to yeah. be a brokerage and like, but this is my territory. Like, this is where I'm going to be. I'm not looking to really like travel seven hours once I have my yeah. schedule full. Like that's, what's going to get cut off and I'm going to try to stay closer to home and just really focus in this neighbor or like this state. Yeah, that's the goal. Um, you know, like right now I have this wide net cast, like I was saying earlier, I mm-hmm. went up to upstate New York, uh, during last year consulting season which that was great. And like, you know, I'll keep traveling like that while I have to. And I'm, you know, I'm building great connections with my clients that I'm working with wherever they are. And I hope that their lifelong clients is what my goal is, but I would really like to narrow it down. Kind of, I have like this map drawn out that I keep uh, stapled up to my whiteboard in my office of where my dream region is. And it's like, if I could draw a line from Columbus East all the way out to, uh, I think the highway in Virginia, I can't remember what the number is, but it goes like right through the spine of Virginia down into, uh, like the Northeast corner of Tennessee, then right back up to Ohio. So it'd cover like Ohio, West Virginia, Virginia, Kentucky, and that be like the mountainous region of Appalachia. Like that's like my, my jam right there. That's just like the terrain I'm really comfortable with. It hunts very similar from one state to the next. And, um, I know that I don't know if like, we're going to, my wife and I have like long-term, if we're going to plant our roots and live in Ohio per se, but it's going to be somewhere that no matter where I'm at, you know, I'm talking about max three, four hour drive time to get to like the core of my work. Um, that's going to be for like the consulting as far as real estate goes, you know, I'm probably going to focus on just Ohio because, the properties are valuable here. Um, I'm, I'm comfortable with the landscape. I've spent so much time here that I can just, I can build up a good market and kind of keep it going. And how, how hard is it to get your real estate license? Because it's something I've thought about getting because I'm very interested in, in investment real estate, mostly Mm -hmm. like commercial or residential rental properties. And if I'm my own agent, then I can, I mean, assuming I find someone that I can have host my brokerage or be my brokerage, Mm -hmm but not expect me to work like full time, which I know isn't like, that's not really what they want. They want people Mm -hmm. in their office selling every day of the week where I just want to be my own real estate agent. So that's hard. Mm -hmm. But if you can figure that out, like that's where I'm very interested, but it's like, I don't know, like I know people study for it and some people like study hard and have to take it twice. And I'm like, is it really that hard? Or is it like some people just different at remembering facts out of a book than others and and like what's it what's it look like to get your real estate license yeah so as far i'll I'll note quick on like what you're talking about for the brokerage that's what led me to joining with uh exp so exp is a cloud-based brokerage where you don't have you don't have to have your own like brick and mortar office you can do everything remotely which fits my lifestyle like really well um Mm -hmm. So that's what drew me to them is having that flexibility and being able to not have to focus on the real estate piece a hundred percent. I can like not even really do residential if I don't want to. Um, But as far as like getting the license goes, that varies from state to state. So I don't know for other states, but I do know Ohio 
as one of the most like prerequisites to taking the test. So we had to do 120 hours of classes of college credits in order to be eligible to take the exam. Oh, wow. And then it was like 20, it was like 20 hours of post licensing. I know it's different from one state to the next, but I do think Ohio's up there with like the, the most that you have to do. Um, the testing. So like I've always been for tests, like just cram, cram, cram and go ahead and take it. Uh, what I noticed, like when I was taking a lot of the practice test was that they would give you the, the, the information itself was pretty basic of like what you had to know. Um, it was just the way they worded a lot of the questions. They tried to confuse you and they gave you two answers that could be right. It was just like one was more right than the other. Mm. And then it gets split up into a national portion and a state portion. And you have to, so it's the same test, but you get graded on them separately. So you take the national portion is like the first 80 questions. And then the state's the last 40 questions. And you have to pass each one individually to get your license. And the national stuff was a lot more like broad and basic info. And then the state was more like state specific regulations in Ohio, which was a little bit more difficult to learn on a shorter time frame because you're talking about like who is in charge of this and doing this and like what are the state's specific um, regulations, penalties, everything like that. So I'm not saying it was easy to do. Uh, by any means, uh, if if you have time to put in to learn the content, understand it. And like I was passionate about real estate beforehand anyway, mm -hmm. uh, with like flipping the house with my wife. And then uh, we're also have goals of like owning rentals, things like that. So like I had a general understanding of how the real estate industry worked. So that helped me out a ton going into it, having that background beforehand. So I think if you kind of get what real estate is, spend some time learning the state specific stuff, you know, you can, you can go out there and get your license for sure. If you were to buy your own home as a realtor. So like for you example, you're a realtor. Now, if you were to move, mm -hmm. I assume you would be your own realtor. Like you wouldn't go yeah. hire a different realtor. So right. then do yep. you get the commission for that sale? Actually, to be completely honest with you, I'm not, um, I'm not a hundred percent sure. Cause it because seems like it would be a hack. Like, yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't, I don't really know actually, because I actually haven't closed any um, transactions yet. Like I just got my license, uh, man, like a month ago. Like I'm still in the process of all my onboarding and kind of like getting my feet underneath me. So right. I'm actually not, I'm not positive how that works for yourself. Uh, I do know that it's obviously a lot easier, uh, like from paperwork standpoint and everything, being able to just, do your, do your own thing rather than trying to have you coordinate with somebody else. That's, that's obviously going to be a nicer piece to it. Right. Like if you do for sale by owner, obviously you're just saving a commission, mm -hmm. but if the buyer has an agent, then you still have to pay like half the commission. Right. Or you can negotiate with the buyer and they'll be like, Hey, can I get your listing? And, and mm -hmm. like, well, I'll give you a 2%. And yeah. You get to give me the name of your client. It's not just like a blank, like, Oh, right. I'm sure you do have someone interested, right? And I'm going to write you this blanket agreement. But I always thought, like, especially if you're, like, talking about home values, like, let's just throw out a million dollars. You know, if you have a 3.5% commission, that's thirty-five grand, Right, yeah. And, and so yeah, it's like, it's like it might be worth it just to be your own real estate agent mm -hmm. in the future if you plan on moving every couple of years. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I was I was drawn to EXP here from Altsbury's, and like that's what I was saying earlier. But then like they don't have a lot of those fees that come in with being uh, employed by other brokerages, which was nice too. Uh, they keep that pretty low uh, to like keep everything active for me on a monthly basis. Okay. Um, so that's that all that kind of stuff is like a big reason why I was drawn to them. And um, it allows me to kind of grow this how I want when I'm not so worried about like I have this looming monthly payment that I need to make sure I'm making this much extra income to cover. Like I don't have to worry about that nearly as much. And I assume your plan is to just really focus on recreational properties with your realty license. Yeah. Yep. Definitely. You know, and like I said, my wife and I, um, we want to get into like building up our own investment portfolio. So I'll definitely use it for that. You know, it's nice to have access to the MLS and everything um, for my, for my own personal use. And then I'm obviously, you know, if, if it comes along and I build up this client base in the recreational land market, and they start telling me that they have their own personal residences they want to list and sell, you know, I'm not going to turn them away and tell them I can't help them with that because I still have an understanding of that as well. It's just that I'm not going to focus my time because I feel like I've crafted out my niche market with the whitetail game that I'm not going to try to go into the saturated residential space when I just, I, I know way more about whitetails and rec land. Yeah. I've always struggled with kind of the topic of do I try to like work super, super hard to get my hobby to pay for like my investments or do I just put all of my extra savings or whatever extra money we have for all like either one and put it towards the investments and then eventually the investments buy more of the hobbies, right? Yeah. Like, like you could get to the point where you're making enough money doing like podcasting or um, habitat design or you know you could spend two years building a successful product business and then you're like okay once this makes it if it makes it you know like the product business is a little bit more of an if yours is more mm-hmm. just like a time and a win like i'm just going to keep building and building but it's more straightforward like less risky right like you're just betting on yourself like if i just make yeah. phone calls and show up every day like i'm going to start making clients i'm going to start selling yeah. you know either one but it's like do i just focus on that and then buy my fourplex or do I buy right. a fourplex and use the cash flow to buy the, you know, buy the dream? Do I use the dream to pay for the investment or do I use the investment yeah. to pay for the dream? Right. Hindsight's twenty twenty, right? It's like whatever yeah. decision you make, it's either the right one or the wrong one. You look back at it and it's like, oh, that was a good idea. Or like, oh, stupid. You should have did the other thing. <laughs> right. And you never know. Like, I don't like to divide forces. So it's like I want to put everything behind one thing at a time. Yeah. And then... You know, because it's like, well, I'm going to dabble. Like, I'm going to buy a, one single-family unit, and I'm going to make an extra $250 a month. Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to buy a recreational property. So there goes the $250 a month. Or I could just, like, keep buying and buying and buying. And now I'm, like, $2,000 a month. Well, now yeah. I can buy quite a property, and it just cash flows. Like, the eightplex plays for the 200 acres. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of, like, uh, my strategy for, like, my own personal portfolio is – to try to one, just like eliminate any bad debt. Like I call, you know, bad debt. That's not tied to any direct source of income. If I can remove all of that is like goal number one. And then whenever I do take away that debt, I just like, don't accept that. Like say it's like a $200 a month payment. I'm not going to like put that $200 in the bank 
I'm going to put it directly back into investment because I was already living without it anyway. Yeah. Um, when it's a lower amount, you know, it's like high interest yield uh, accounts or into the stock market, whatever it may be, until you can build up a nest egg. And then it's like, I now have this pile of money. What can I do with it once it like actually makes sense to pull that trigger on something? Um, yeah. So that's kind of like our mine and my wife's approach on it is trying to build up a nest egg while also trying to knock down the bad debt. So that way we can, once it's time to like pull the trigger, because our goal is to buy our own whitetail property um, before August of 2024. I'd like to do it sooner. Uh, we've been really adamant on making it happen because I want to be able to put all of my own designs and plans into my own piece, obviously, because right. it's a great way to make a bunch of content and it's also like the proof is in the pudding when I'm starting to send out quotes and stuff to guys. Like I'm literally doing what I'm writing right. in your plan. I'm, you know. Yeah, no, I like it. I mean, I've thought about. Um, I've always wanted to buy and hold my own land, and and we have a bunch of family farms, and so those will always stay in the family too. Like we've talked about kind of succession, and like we're never going to sell these pieces really. Mm -hmm. But I, I I also share them with other people in the family. So I, I don't have like complete decision-making power. And so I've always wanted to buy my own farm. I've never lived in the same County as that since I left for school. So it's always been mm -hmm. two or two and a half hours to drive back home and hunt those properties, which I do yeah. on weekends, but I've always wanted to like have my Tuesday night spot. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. now like this 40 is going to be like the buy and hold, but is you, when you talk about buying your whitetail property, is it going to be a buy and hold? Is it going to be like a, a short term, like buy and flip, or is it going to be like a, a buy and we'll see what happens maybe five years after all the work's done we'll take our sweat equity cash it out buy a little bigger one you know yeah uh so our goal is to um pretty much buy and flip as quick as possible to kind mm -hmm. of keep leveling up whether it be you know after we're able to do the first one because like the idea is like we talked about earlier like get into these undervalued areas of the state that I know hold good quality trophy deer, especially with habitat improvements, go in there and get that undervalued land, improve it, set it up and have it turnkey for the next guy. Mm -hmm. And then whatever that, and whatever that investment returns, now can I go out and maybe get either two parcels of the same size or a little bit bigger parcel where there's a bigger payday at the end and either, you know, running two smaller projects at once about the same size as the one before or go to that next one and make it an even bigger project. I'm like a big system guy. So I know like when I get this first property and I am in the driver's seat from start to finish on how everything goes, I'm gonna run my systems and then I'm also gonna track them and say like, how well did this work? How shitty did this one not work, you know? Yeah. And then use that for these next properties. So that way I know like, at this point, okay, what stuff am I going to do myself and what stuff am I going to hire out? And just like keep making it more and more efficient for myself. And then now that's just one more thing I can do for value add to my clients in the future as well. I can, I can not only design this property for you, but here's the system I used on my own property to turn it from a $100,000 piece to a $200,000 piece in just a few years, you know, just throwing numbers out there. But that's the idea. Like, build this efficient system so I can now help people do it themselves or help people uh, do it under my guidance. Yeah. 
I mean, that's I like what you're doing there. I'm kind of doing the same thing. So I have a half acre. I had a half acre pasture behind our shop, just in the backyard, and I've always wanted to do like food plot testing. And mm-hmm. so I started it this year, and we got we moved in in the middle of July. We had to paint. We had to do a whole bunch of stuff. So we were, we were behind. And so I wanted to test a whole bunch of things. Turns out the first year, all we tested was what we did, like, three different fertilizer rates. And said we did zero, half, and full recommended. And just to track, like, the differences. And then to know, like, okay, is it worth doing full fertilizer? Because it's, it's the most export expensive part of a food plot after you buy mm-hmm. the land and the tractor. Like, yep. seed is pretty cheap all across the board, like a bag of corn. Yeah. If you buy a bag of like Monsanto corn, it's going to be $200, but that's three acres of corn seed right. versus yeah. like the fertilizer for those three acres is going to be like 300 pounds an acre. Like, so mm. that's, you're adding up $150 of fertilizer per acre or $200 of fertilizer per acre. Like it adds up really fast. And so where's that fine line? And then to be able to create content around that and show that it's like, okay, next year, we kind of determined, like, this is the optimal rate of fertilizer. Now, what's the best way to put it in the ground? Because mm-hmm. a lot of food plotters, they get one weekend, right? Yep. They go to the farm, yeah. they, this is the weekend, and it's got to work. And if it doesn't work, we're not coming back for two weeks, and then it's too late to plant again. And so just to have that confidence to say this is the best way to put the seed in the ground for what we have to work with, right? Because yep. I'm not buying a $15,000 drill so mm-hmm. should i spread it let the rain work it in should i disc it in should i drag it in should i pack it in like what what should i do and just to say like this is this is what yielded the best results here was the rain and the weather that year and you know maybe try it again on a different year that's wetter or you know what i mean so that yep. maybe it's like well if it's a really wet year we just drag it in but if it's a really dry year we're gonna cult pack it in and, or you know whatever that case may be yeah yeah, I think that, that approach, that's that's pretty much it for me too, you know, in, in the sense of any project, whatever it may be, like figure out figure out what you can control mm-hmm. and track those inputs and then also track the things that you can't control. Like this year, was it a super hot and dry summer? And then see how all, like you're able to do that split testing. Yeah. So you have data for a hot and dry summer for, you know, 0% fertilizer, 25%. 50, 75, 100, whatever it may be, you have all of this different testing. So now you know like, oh, wow, this is the same exact summer that we had back in 2023. This is probably what I should do. Right. And then you can do that on a larger scale and then you can test it out from there. So it's just like constantly getting better and better. You know, that's like the big thing for me. It's you can't just draw up this plan, come in and set up the projects and be like, okay, here we go. It's like, that's when the work starts is like when the plan is drawn up, like now it's go time. You start putting in those projects, see how the deer react to them. And then what changes do I need to make to make my property better next year? Because the thing about it is, is that you, you're not just uh, worrying about your property. It's what are the neighbors in my square mile doing as well? If you're improving your property, but they're also all improving them it's going to be better for everybody in the long term, but still in the short term, who's got the best stuff. Yeah. And that's going to yeah. determine how that deer shift kind of works too. So it's, it's just like anything else, you know, you gotta, you gotta track it and uh, just make the most of it. I'm curious how our farm is going to lay out because we have high human population in the area, right? Mm-hmm. So these deer are used to humans. I mean, I had 
this morning I had a doe in my backyard at eight twenty on camera, and I was awake showering and, and you know getting ready for the day. Um, almost every night last week we could see like I have a camera that points at the back of my house from our backyard, and we have mm-hmm. kind of like a wooded opening. I mean, it's there's there, really it's there's clover growing and acorns falling in our backyard, so the deer are yeah. coming through. And I have a salt lick, and it points right at our back windows. And so I could be like, oh, hey, there was deer out while we were watching TV last night. Like, I can see the TV through the window on my trail camera and the deer. And so it's like they're used to people. And these big bucks, like everyone, like the urban hunting thing is exploding. Like, there's tons of 200-inch deer in the middle of the metro areas, in the middle of people's backyards. And so I'm curious if if it's going to turn out, and I'm obviously I'm a little biased. I want it to turn out this way and it might not, but since there's so many houses and yards around our block, like our block is probably a mile by a half mile. And then the middle is all habitat with houses all lined all the way around the edge. So the deer are all used to people. They're used Mm -hmm. to me, people walking in their backyards, mowing, doing all this stuff. So they probably don't get bumped off as fast. Like if I go out and walk and check my cameras, at the same time, I also have the habitat to do food plots and stuff. So it's like if they catch a small whiff, like if I sent control up, but they catch a small whiff, are they just going to be like, eh, people live here too, not a yeah. big deal. Or like, you know what I mean? Like if I'm out there every day doing projects, do they just be like, ah, he's doing a project, he's going to go back. I'm not even going to mm-hmm. get out of my bed. It'll be fine. I'll just wait a half hour until he's gone to make sure yeah. he's gone. And then, you know, like, do you know what I mean? Like. Because people are shooting 200-inch bucks in the back of a two-acre lot where the kids play on the trampoline every night. So clearly, like, they understand those people aren't a threat. So are they going to kind of essentially say, like, oh, this guy's not a threat either because nobody on this block is really a threat until come fall, but then I just bounce into the deeper, thick stuff. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, like, I get to capitalize on that because I actually am the one that is a threat. Like, I'm planting the food plots, and then I'm going to go in. Because no one on my block does food plots. You can look on yeah. the map. Like, there's not one food plot. I think two different people did some mowing the year that satellite picture was taken, and I, but I think it was just to open up some lanes for, like, gun season. Right, yeah. Yeah, no, I think uh, I, I definitely agree that, like, the deer are used to people. Like, they know they can distinguish the threat to not a threat, and I feel like it comes down to – you always, like, hear these weird stories about, like, a guy – that owns like a 20 acre piece and he does like a lot of welding in his barn. So there's always like that welding smoke in the air. So he's like, I could just go out every time before I hunt and I do a little bit of welding. Then I climb right in the tree stand with the same clothes on and I never get busted by deer. It doesn't matter what the wind is. It's like, I just feel like they're really good at distinguishing like what is a predator and what isn't. And if it's something out of the ordinary, that's when they're going to be like, something's up. This isn't right. I'm going to split out of here, but I definitely think you have a very good opportunity to capitalize on that. Uh, Like another piece that I was on last year, the guy and his wife, they love walking the property. Like they had a trail system for themselves that they used to walk the property and they do it all year long. They just said, that's not something that we're willing to give up um, even during hunting season. So we just kind of worked with it, left the trail system there and kind of set it up accordingly but we made all of his accesses for his tree stands and all of his setups very close to the trails that they walked on because they're in there all the time. So the deer are used to that foot traffic. So having a tree stand set up 10 yards off of the hiking trail, walking trail, whatever it may be, 
is not going to affect them because they're so used to the people being there. So he can virtually slip in and out of that all of the time. And yeah, you know, you're not, it's not a foolproof system, but still like it increases your odds so much because we're playing a very low odds game here and trying to harvest bucks, mature bucks, you know, it's a low odds game. So anything we can do, even to add that extra 10, 15%, you know, you're talking about just stacking those odds in your favor, which is what it's all about. Yeah. Yeah, it certainly is. And just like that, we've talked about stacking those odds in the favor of the of the landowner for over an hour already. So yeah, yeah. yeah. Awesome. I want to before we close up, I want to give people a chance. Um, one question, and then give people a chance to follow and and connect with you. But would are you able to do like any level of remote consulting? Like, say, a guy in Minnesota hears like. Hey, I just, Mm -hmm. I connected with Greg. I felt like he's a cool dude. I want to have him do it. Like, obviously he's not going to get a chance to walk it, but do you have anything set up where like you guys could get on a Skype call, kind of look at some maps and, and it's maybe not the full plan, but we could get started with something. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, so, and all this information is on our website as well. Uh, we got all of our services laid out there. It's just, uh, www.whitetailpartners.com and that shows all of our services, but yeah, no, there's a, there's a wide range of different virtual options. You know, we can do the same design that we would do if it's an on-site visit. Um, and like you said, it's not going to be as effective because you can't compete with boots on the ground, you know, but you can still get a different point of view on your property and get that expert opinion of this is how I would lay it out. And, you know, the, the price point for that is going to vary because you're not getting that grade A plus service of boots on the ground, full design, property layout, everything like that. But you're still getting very good information. Yeah. And then I work it all the way down to just like if somebody has, you know, like a list of 10 questions they've just had burning in their head about their property and they want to sit down and do like a one, two hour Zoom session. You know, I do services all the way down to that as well. Um, Just a good way to adapt to the environment of what people need. And that keeps me kind of open to all of the markets. It's not just these guys with the 200 acre dream whitetail properties that we're designing up, you know, because I want everybody to enjoy hunting like it should be enjoyed. And by being able to help anybody and everybody out, uh, it's a great way to do it. And then I also, I also try to load up, uh, I'm active on my Instagram, way more active during season. I try to load that up with just like map samples from design work. Uh, when I'm out in the field, like just little scouting tips, things like that. And I try to post a bunch of value on there um, just for one. So people know that I'm not just some Yahoo that's uh, trying to take their money, but I actually know a little bit about deer. And um, I just want, like I said, I want people to enjoy the hunting more and get more out of it because it's, it's all better when everybody, when everybody does better. So that's, that's, that's my story sticking to it. Awesome. Well, thank you for being here, Greg, and thank you for listening, folks.